0: All right, hello, and welcome to the Understanding Autism Podcast, where we talk about issues related to those in the autism and greater neurodiverse community. I'm your co-host, Brett Thayer.
1: And I'm Nicole Kabilis. This episode is an extension of our previous episode, which takes a deep dive on autism and suicidal ideation. Just to give a a quick general overhead of what we covered in that episode, we were focusing exclusively on the reasons why a person with, uh, with autism would want to commit suicide. Um, and we're, we really focused more on the reasons why rather than, um, talking about supportive resources for that person. Um, and we also didn't talk about if a person with autism is grieving the loss of somebody else that has committed suicide and suicide is a huge topic. Um, and so we were able to talk a little bit about it based on, um, some of our personal experience related to the topic, as well as some research. Um, But we are really lucky to have a special guest on our episode today who is very passionate, very knowledgeable about the topic. Um, So we're here to welcome Caitlin Zemansky to talk in greater detail about autism and suicide. We may cover some topics that we previously had done in our episode, and we may go into some new things. So welcome, Caitlin. Hi, thank you for having me. So um, just before we get started, can you give a, a brief description of your background, your professional background, your relationship with the autism community and why you're interested in this topic?
2: Yeah, um, so I am a licensed social worker based in Maryland. Um, I work with people on the spectrum. I've I've had about uh, 10 years of experience. Um, I'm also a self-advocate and the reason I'm into suicide, um, or at least researching it, um, is just to better inform my practice and how to better support this community. In addition to uh, my full-time work, um, I'm also a a QPR gatekeeper instructor, so basically that means that I run trainings um, primarily for my own organization where I work, but I have offered community trainings basically how to support somebody who you may suspect is experiencing suicidal ideation and how you can just breach the question and how to best support them. And that's not exclusively to autism, but it's, it's, um, you know, for the general public, but in my training specifically, I do a large section on autism specifically related to suicide.
0: All right. So so this is a sensitive topic. And I want to reiterate that if you're feeling, um, Thoughts of suicide, or or something like that, or or you need to talk to somebody. The national hotline is 988-988-988 is the national suicide hotline. Help is available. Speak with someone today. All right. So our first question for you uh, is: uh, What are the rates of suicide among autistic people in contrast to the general population? So have you noticed in your work and your your experience that there is an increase in um, suicidal ideation among those on the spectrum
2: um I don't know if I would say increase but we are definitely more aware of higher rates of suicide in this community just based on better research and like better ways to support people on the spectrum um there was a study back in 2021 that was conducted in Denmark um and based on their survey of um, people on the spectrum that they interviewed, they found that suicide attempts and deaths by suicide were three times higher among people with autism compared mm. to, to those in the general public. Um, and it's even higher for women um, mm. with autism who are more likely to die by suicide um, and have mm. higher rates of attempts than males.
0: Yeah. Do you have any data on how that impacts or how does that relate to the um, LGBTQ plus community and, uh, and those on the spectrum?
2: Yeah. So generally, um, people who are LGBTQ plus and autistic, there's a lot of intersection between both communities. And it's becoming more and more aware that people who are LGBTQ plus also share similar feelings about um, like low self-esteem and also have uh, poor physical and mental health compared to cis straight people. Um, and that is, that's even the case um, when autism comes into the picture. So people who have the intersectionality of being autistic, but also LGBTQ+, is correlated with poor health um, compared to their cis counterparts. However, this is still an area that, that's understudied. Um, and that needs a lot more uh, data
1: to back that. Um, I wanted to go back to the clarification of women having a higher rate of suicide mm-hmm. than men. Um, why do you think it's higher for women in contrast to men?
2: Uh, well, for women with autism, generally women are raised with different societal expectations and have certain uh, traits and characteristics that we're expected to follow you know being ladylike quote unquote or those kind of things and with that comes a lot more of uh, masking
1: that people discuss well and and i also wonder about that in relation to how women are diagnosed less with Mm -hmm. autism that they kind of fly under the radar so um i mean I I've met um people who are associated with women with autism who get diagnosed in um in inpatient clinics. Um and so I do wonder about you know if if women are not getting diagnosed as frequently compared to men and it's not as obvious, that definitely creates an increased risk of getting neurodiverse specific mental health support
2: yeah so what i've seen from advocates in the field um there's a lot of stories specifically from women who have, have expressed that they had other diagnoses prior to being diagnosed with autism so it's pretty common to get you know diagnosed with like mood disorders or, or some kind of mental illness and it is possible for people to still have those diagnoses. Um, there is another part of the study um, that I believe is from this one I was just reading, where people with co-occurring co- diagnoses um, have a higher rate of both attempting and dying by su- suicide compared to those who only, have, um, who only have the autism diagnosis. So the addition to another diagnosis of things like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, depression, you're gonna have a higher
1: rate of that compared to only just being diagnosed with autism. So, how does masking an autistic burnout increase the risk of suicidal ideation? So,
2: um, people who are autistic tend to be expected to have to mask their traits in order to conform to societal expectations. And there's little to no consideration as to what drives them to engage those things. It could be a self soothing. Um, reason, or it may be their form of communication, or expressing ha- if they're happy, or if something is 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 not going well. Um, and interventions these days, especially when we look at like behavioral therapies, whose initial um, origin was to sort of normalize uh, certain behaviors, um, so that they can fit in. Um, so things like making eye contact, or being forced to sit still. Um, which can exacerbate this feeling of disconnection between the person that we we are and want to be and be able to be comfortable in our own skin and this person that the world wants us to be. And that can cause anxiety, lower self-esteem. Um, and just feeling of disconnect from people in general. And going back to the topic of women, women typically have higher rates of masking, um, again, because they're socialized yeah. differently and have different expectations from their male counterparts to, um, you know, have some sort of social etiquette or whatever.
0: Yeah, I can, I can imagine that, you know, in the world of, of being autistic in a neurotypical community or, or environment, um, mm-hmm. you become very good at masking. And if you're good at masking your autistic traits, then you're also good at masking your emotions and your mental right. health struggles. So, one thing I wanted to, to ask um, in your experience is, are there, are, are there misconceptions out there about autism, mental health, and suicidal yeah, ideation? Yeah,
2: um, to... To kind of focus on autism a little bit, um, research suggests that people who are autistic with lower support needs, so these are people who may be able to hold a job or may be able to live on their own and have some kind of relationships with people with um, little assistance, they are uh, considered the highest risk of suicide compared to those with higher needs. so that's something that we consider as well, just because um, you know we don't want to we want to include everybody in there. But um, that's sort of the right. general understanding. Um, but for suicide, there's definitely um, a lot of misconceptions as far as how we talk about autism um, and how some people mm-hmm. feel uncomfortable talking. Sorry about suicide and how being uncomfortable talking about suicide. Um, so one misconception that people commonly have is that if we were to ask somebody, if they're thinking about suicide or thinking of ending their life, that it's gonna make them angry, and that it might even incre- increase their risk of actually attempting. when in actuality, if we were to breach the question, you're kind of doing that person a favor, lowering their anxiety and opening up this conversation. Um, so that they can be closer to getting the help that they need. And and the other thing with suicide um, is that most people do communicate that their intent, um, especially um, in the week preceding an attempt, if they do attempt. So in QPR, we have what we call clues. Um, and we we use clues rather than, like, warning signs because when you have a clue, it's going to take you to a, you know, it's almost like a treasure map, right? You're putting all the pieces together and you're kind of navigating to see what's going on. So some of the clues that um, we are often looking for is both direct and indirect verbal comments. So there's uh, direct is basically what it means, being direct about what you want to do. So somebody openly saying, I'm going to kill myself or I want to end my life. Whereas the indirect verbal is just as concerning as the direct, where might people say,, um, "Well, pretty soon you're not going to see me anymore." or um, you know, the world would just be better off without me and I won't and I don't want to be a problem anymore or I can't do this anymore." Mm-hmm. Um, I think sometimes people may get into this rut where they say, if they're going through, A challenging, stressful day at work or wherever. I think we're all kind of guilty of having those moments where we're just like, oh, I just wish I were dead right now because of something stressful going on. But, um, you know, but taking those comments and still being considerate and, like, recognizing what else could be going on. We're also looking for any changes to someone's behavior. Um, So that could be, uh, you know, are they... Are they having difficulty sleeping? Are they not eating as much? Um, do they not enjoy things that they used to enjoy, like any hobbies or seeing certain people um, or any just expression of feeling hopeless about stuff? Um, and then I would also say, being like understanding the context or like the sort of situational things going on. You know, did this person uh, lose somebody important to them? Um, especially if they lose somebody to suicide right um, are they going through any other kind of loss were they mm. fired from a job Did they end a romantic relationship um, a number of things could be sort of the last straw um, before someone decides they're gonna try to attempt mm. um, so generally context matters um, overall so it's kind of hard to take one of these clues and just go with that. But when you're seeing everything put together, um, that'll give you a better understanding.
1: Yeah. And and I think it's also important to mention that what can trigger an autistic person into mental health distress or suicidal ideation may Mm -hmm. seem to a neurotypical person like a not a big deal thing. Um, Because I I had a friend who told me his transition from high school to college created a lot of distress for him. Um, So so these major life transitions that are, you know, natural milestones that every human goes through, they can create a huge amount of distress because we autistic people need consistency, structure, and predictability. Mm -hmm. And one thing we talked about in our previous episode was how when an important caregiver is no longer in the picture, like when there's a transition in caregiving roles or a significant caregiver passes away um, that that can create, you know, it's like this existential crisis of like, how do I function if I don't have this one specific person? And so I think like what I'm reflecting on is that the signs of suicidal ideation, I think, aren't super different Mm -hmm. from you know, neurotypical people. um, And at the same time, a very nuanced, slight transition or change um, can be very explosive for an autistic person's mental health in contrast to somebody who's more neurotypical, you know, not more neurotypical, is Um, neurotypical. Yeah, I think you
2: make a really good point when it comes to losing somebody in our Um, in our, like, immediate environment. And that definitely happens in the direct service field um, where you have somebody get to know their coach or support professional. And sometimes there's this blurred line of boundaries where people, they think you're their friend um, when you show up And one day they're going to get promoted to a new position, or they just might leave the agency entirely. So you're having to rebuild that relationship again with somebody new. Um, So I think that does definitely touch on Mm -hmm. the loss or like abandonment feeling as like a potential risk factor specific to the autism community. Um, And risk factors in this context of suicide are the things that might be sort of like the antecedents to, you know, feeling like you want to attempt one day. So people on the spectrum do have the same risk factors as other people do as far as like uh, genetics and biological background, environmental uh, triggers, um, being part of a minority, um, similar risks, but then there are other risk factors to consider Um, this feeling of social isolation Um, I mentioned earlier with um, what you were mentioning earlier about not having somebody close by and that can also be related to not having a job which we know um, that people with autism typically have a difficult time obtaining a job Um, and with jobs that's typically where we have our social networks, people that we can connect with and be able to make friends and make these connections, but if we don't have a job or we're underemployed, maybe we're not working as much, so we're not getting as much access to people that we would like to have in our lives. Um, another risk factor and um, is the sort of diagnostic oversight. We kind of briefly touched on it with being diagnosed with other um, things before you get diagnosed with autism, which would make your treatment differently and maybe not customized in the way that's most helpful for you. Um, there's also barriers to accessing mental health care um, because you may have a lot of professionals in wherever area you are who don't have experience working with people with autism. And so it's hard to have that connection with somebody who you're just kind of having to teach everything about you in order for them
1: to support you better. Um, and I also want to bring up, I think that there are misconceptions about this topic that parents have as well. Because I think that parents think that they're doing a good thing by saying, like, well, is if you can camouflage and be as neurotypical as possible, you'll be successful. And it's usually when that person is suicidal that parents are like, Oh, wait, maybe that's not the right thing to do. Or it can go the other way around where they're like, well, we need to do more intervention to fix you. Um, and and so I, I guess I'm curious if you have any thoughts on the misconceptions parents might have in the way that they view suicidal ideation, you know, before and after. Um, that's a
2: great question. I don't have any specific experiences with, with parents, um, you know, intervening suicidal stuff i can speak maybe just from my past experiences working with teenagers um, and i think sometimes mental health care is almost treated like a punishment where it's like well if you can't be a functioning person or a normal person then you have to go to therapy right yeah and that can you know Makes people right. not want to do it because they kind of think of it as this negative thing you have to go through. And it's hard to be in therapy and open up those jars of worms and have to talk about things that make you uncomfortable. And if you're not in the right space to be discussing those things, then you're not going to get um, yeah. any benefit from from the therapy.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say probably the, big, the biggest takeaway I would personally recommend to parents is, you know, if you have a child that's in a really vulnerable position um, with their mental health, I don't think the solution is to reinforce more masking. It may feel vulnerable um, to have that unknown of where is this child going to go and are they going to, you know, are they going to function and have a normal life? But I I think that 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 recovery and that care is really about affirming um, their needs and who they are and um, trying to find ways to figure out how to support and empower their neurodiversity rather than hiding it, because that was a, a really big part of what led to the suicidal ideation. But. I'm not a social worker, I'm I'm. Currently getting my master's in counseling, you might have more insight than I do on that.
2: I mean, I think you are definitely make some really good points. And I, I would agree with you that this idea of camouflaging even more, especially if you're thinking about ending your life because you've been masking, it just kind of further instills this idea in somebody that you can't talk about how you're feeling because you know, the initial reaction from family is to do all the stuff rather than to listen and to be supportive of you rather than just jumping to things that you don't want to do.
1: Yeah, exactly. So as you kind of had mentioned in our email correspondence, um, you said there aren't enough evidence-based interventions designed for autistic people and specifically adults experiencing mental health issues. Um, First off, I would love to hear more about um, why there aren't (laughs) enough evidence-based interventions. And also, what do you think some autism-affirming interventions could look like?
2: Um, So, yeah, this might kind of bleed into another question that we had during our correspondence. Um, But I think a large reason why we don't see a lot of specific, um, like specifically for adults with autism, having access to mental health-related uh, treatment. Um, it's because we just don't have enough research or, um, or evidence-based uh, theories to properly say that this is gonna work for, some, for somebody, not because that there isn't, you know. There definitely are some adaptations we can make to current evidence-based interventions, to so things like CBT, DBT, ACT, um, to make those more accessible. Um, but in general, a lot of research around autism is so focused around genetics and, uh, you know, finding a cure, maybe not not using that terminology these days, but still sort of um, instilling this idea that autism is still not normal and still
1: needs to be fixed. All right. So, um, I, I just want to clarify, did you say... I guess what autism-affirming interventions could not, look not like. Not yet.
2: Um, so I think bef- I think before we kind of get into that, I also want to mention there needs to be a lot of policy change and changes to how helping professionals practice in order to understand more about the long-term te- the long-term needs. Um, of autistic adults. Um, And I think one type of um, affirming intervention is community partnership. So involving autistic adults, supporting professionals, people who have the knowledge and experience to exchange between the two in order to make the most comprehensive, effective um, intervention that we can have. Um, I would say the closest thing we have right now, as I mentioned, um, so things like CBT, DBT, or ACT, um, ACT standing for Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, um, taking those types of interventions and making them more accessible, so maybe converting it from you know a lot of text or a lot of speaking to more visuals, more tangible items to manipulate Um, And if you're in like the direct service field, um, maybe incorporating some of those coping strategies into daily life. So if, you know, somebody is experiencing a lot of depressive symptoms, and they're having a hard time, you know, getting out of bed, or making those kind of doing things to take care of themselves, what are some strategies that would work for you? Would having a daily schedule help? Would having some kind of reminder on your phone to follow a schedule? Would
1: would those things help? Yeah, and we had talked um, previously about, you know, the need for just any sort of autistic support to be trauma-informed, especially Mm -hmm. for adults, and so I agree. I think that there's a lot of openings and unknowns about what this looks like. Um, but but I think having a trauma-informed approach right. is a good start. It it at least, you know, it's somewhat familiar in the care field, um, even if autism or neurodiversity uh, trauma-informed care is kind of a new thing.
2: Right. Trauma is definitely a major part of any kind of intervention um, with, with people with autism and in just in general. um, There's definitely a lot of trauma that's associated with being autistic, whether it's feeling isolated or having some sort of traumatic experience happen to you. So we definitely don't want to re-traumatize people in our treatments. Um, So if, you know, somebody is attempting to, like, put your hand on their shoulder, that might make them feel uncomfortable, but you don't know that they had something happen with them. So, yeah, trauma is definitely important.
0: Okay. One thing we've talked about often in our podcast is the uh, medical model of disability versus the social model of disability. How does the those viewpoints impact support services um, for suicide ideation, do you think?
2: Um, I, I think it goes back to this idea that people with autism need a cure. I think when that was sort of the message 20 plus years ago um, with Autism Speaks and other similar um, organizations or family-led groups, um, it kind of gave off this message to the world that people with autism are unwanted and that they are broken Mm. and that they shouldn't be the way that they are. And I think that has an influence on how people feel about themselves. It's not just in the messaging, but it's also evident in where we invest our money. So, if we were to look at all the money um, that's invested in autism research, we would see a large chunk of it going to genetics and Mm. trying to see like what genetic material may be related to autism. And some people. Con- connect those to two ideas around like eugenics hmm. um, and people. There's also a lot of research on early diagnosis and early intervention, which, you know, it's not a bad thing to be researching early intervention, especially if we want to, you know, hit kids at an early age where they right. can um, practice those skills early on and be able to have a better setup in life. Um, but if we're looking at aut- adult related um, Research—it's a very small sl- uh, sliver okay. in like a pie chart, which um, is pretty ridiculous once when, when you consider like you know how big the population of autistic adults is getting. Right. Um, there is a quote from a journalist named Sarah Letterman, um, who is pretty open about their diagnosis with autism and also open about their um, attempt of suicide in the past, and. They wrote an article, and from the article, there's a great quote where they say, uh, Millions of dollars go to genetically altered zebra fish and rats that grow too much, but hardly any to find out why so many autistic adults attempt suicide.
0: Interesting. So I can, I can imagine, too, that the uh, the medical model of disability, right, it, it's just you kind of tick off these, these checklists. Okay, so if this person is autistic, well check this box. Do they have this behavior? Do they have that behavior? Do they have this other behavior? And so what what happens is that um, in the medical community and non-autistic people say, well, you know, if you didn't have that one behavior or symptom, then quote unquote, you would be uh, fixed or cured about that. So being stuck in that model, I can imagine is is not very helpful at all.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, and that's, the primary way that a lot of uh people with autism and their families get educated about autism is primarily through the medical model. I think when it comes to care it's it's really good to kind of look at um both sides of the coin so not really alienate one or the other. But I think that uh it's important to kind of look at the internal, you know, biological genetic factors, um any sort of trauma, but then also looking at, you know, How is society imposing Mm -hmm. um, conflicts that are worsening um, people with autism's mental health? Because as we talked about, the need to mask is essentially a social barrier that's created by people with neurotypical privilege. Right. Okay. Um, So what are the signs to look out for in case you may suspect a person with autism is experiencing suicidal ideation?
2: Um, So the same clues that I was talking about earlier, so the direct or indirect verbal comments, any changes to someone's behavior, um, and whatever the situation is going on in the context of what's going on in that person's life. Um, I would say in addition to those, some other considerations specific for the autism community I would say please don't ignore any comments that may come off as suicidal ideation and don't assume that it's somebody trying to seek attention for the sake of seeking attention. Um, I've definitely heard that from parents of people who um, whose young adults have expressed um, suicidal comments and it's usually met back with, oh, you're not really going to do it or you're not serious or those kind of things, or you're just doing it for attention. Um, And maybe you know with like 99% certainty that they won't, but we don't, the greatest two risks for even that 1% for that person to attempt when we can be working with them. Um, Another sort of misconception, as you mentioned earlier with your question about misconceptions about suicide, um, Mm -hmm. one thing I commonly say in my trainings is that Suicide is not the problem; it's the solution to the problem. Mm-hmm. Meaning that um, you know you you are seeing as suicide as a way to get out of whatever situation you're finding yourself in. And if somebody is openly making comments about it, rather than ignoring them or trying to manage the behavior, maybe talking with them to understand what the you know what the meaning behind those comments were, and maybe there's right. like a larger issue going on. Um, I would say my other Thing to look out for um is differentiating between suicidal and non-suicidal self-injurious behaviors um because uh you know some people on the spectrum do engage in self-injury for a multitude of reasons whether it's related to um you know a meltdown or a shutdown that they may be experiencing or it may be a form of self-soothing um to engage in some self-harm um Whereas, like, if somebody is, you know, engaging in something that is definitely very risky, um, just be able to understand why, like, they may be engaging in that.
1: I want to go back to what you said earlier about how some people will respond to a suicidal autistic person and be like, oh, you're not going to actually do it. And it just makes me wonder. I feel like there's this prevailing stigma that a lot of autistic people deal with around um you're you're not socially competent or you're not emotionally competent mm-hmm. and then it creates that feeling of like i don't know it almost feels like you're devaluing somebody's emotions because of a stereotype that a person with autism doesn't understand social emotional cues mm-hmm. i mean do you do you feel i don't know that that resonates or do you have any thoughts on that um it's definitely Possible to
2: assume that somebody may not understand what they're going through Um, and sometimes people may even interpret that as, as related to a tantrum because you didn't get something the way you wanted to go or get something that you really wanted. And maybe you're making comments like that as retaliation and that can be interpreted as that rather than looking in looking deeper as to what the issue is. And yeah, I think generally with the autism population, there's this misunderstanding that people with autism don't have emotions or don't feel empathy, or, you know, don't have these sort of greater existential feelings as neurotypical people do. And that's just totally false, not, you know, just because someone may not be able to express it the same way that you do doesn't mean that they don't have those thoughts and feelings.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and I think another thing I've noticed, cause you know, I, we have a background in education and you know, I'm getting mental health training. You're, you have a lot of mental health training. I feel like in our fields, you know, any indication of suicide we take very seriously. But what I notice with in interpersonal situations, like say, for example, a friend or a parent, they may feel uncomfortable with how to act on it. So I think it's easier for people who don't have mental health training or aren't mandatory reporters to just sort of be like, oh, you're not serious. Oh, it's not a big deal. Because addressing it means you have to acknowledge and deal with this fear of You know oh that person is suicidal and and especially depending on the age of the person that can feel you know like oh you're a teenager like you're being melodramatic um and so i guess i i wonder maybe how parents could get more training so that when they do see a sign like they can take action and do it and do so in a way that makes them feel comfortable rather than maybe shooting in the dark or you know trying to dismiss it for their comfort Mm Um,
2: So uh, this might turn into a quick ad for QPR, um, but uh, (laughs) I would say the QPR Institute um, has has gatekeeper training that's available online. You can also get, um, you can also attend an in-person training. So I believe it's a nationwide um, organization. So if you were to go to, if you were to look up QPR Institute, um, there's a page on there that lets you select what state you're in, and it'll, it'll pull up a list of certified trainers in QPR and in Maryland. I'm in, I'm one of those trainers, so if you're a Maryland-based, you'll find me on there. Um, I, I think also if um, if we're also thinking about autism-specific, I would continue to follow people um you know in media people who are autistic expressing their experiences reading books reading stories about people with autism talking about their lives because i think the more the more exposure you have to it the better understanding you may have about what your child or young adult may be going through
1: hmm do the signs Uh, of suicide look different for an autistic person in comparison to a neurotypical person? Uh, I would... um,
2: I guess it depends on what the behavior is. I would say the functions of the behavior um, are generally not that different. You know, we want to escape this feeling that we're having or escape a situation that we're in. Um, I think it's just, you know, people with autism... Are typically responded to differently than the neurotypical person who may be taken more seriously um, and have easier access to health care or mental health care than the, the autistic person would.
0: Okay, as we are uh, closing out this episode, again, I want to mention that help is available. The National Suicide Hotline is nine eight eight nine eight eight. speak with someone today if you are having thoughts of, of suicide. Okay, so. One thing that we wanted to, to close out is for you to um, help us with some resources. You've, you've mentioned several already the QPR Institute training, um, following people in the autism community. Um, are there any other resources that you would recommend to support a person with autism struggling with uh, suicidal ideation or feeling?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I would look into your uh, state's local crisis hotlines, um, similar to 988. Um, generally, there are people who are on the line that are open 24-7, that are ready to talk to anybody at any time about any crisis, um, no matter how severe it may be. Um, and then um, I think one thing I didn't get to mention earlier, but I think it's perfect for this, is that um, sometimes resources to mental health treatment are not easily accessible to people in general. And that could be because of a geographical location or just not having the expertise that you're looking for in your area. Um, so I would highly encourage community connections. Um, so involving friends, family, um, maybe places of worship, Um, If you're, you know, if you're doing sports or you're involved in some kind of community club or whatever, um, you know, make sure you have those strong connections because you don't have to take on these things alone. And you have people who will support you.
1: Do you have any uh, book recommendations? I know you said that there were some autistic people who have been open about their experiences with suicidal ideation. Are there any names of people that come to mind that have... Published work out there that we could share with our audience, specifically about suicide uh, or mental health. Um,
2: there's one that I usually recommend. It came out a few years ago. It's called Sincerely, Your Autistic Child, and it's a collection of of some essays that are written by uh, predominantly women and people who are LGBTQ plus. Um, who are also autistic and they share um, basically their experiences growing up and just share experiences that um, they had and what they wish that their parents and their families knew as they were younger as to like how to better support them so that like they don't have those feelings of hopelessness and isolation.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree with you. I, I think the more that an autistic person can read about other autistic people's experience, you know, firsthand experience with mental health, not only does it not make you feel alone, but it also kind of makes you realize like this bigger picture, like, because it sometimes feels like, you know, you're a failure, it's your fault. Um, but the more that you, you know, engage with other autistic people, you realize that there's this sort of, universal autistic struggle that we all go through. Yeah, And, and I think it may, it helps us to feel more compassionate to ourselves. And it also helps us to seek help. And, and, and like you said, I think community and, and not isolating yourself from uh, other neurodiverse communities, you know, those are all really important.
2: Right, you know, I think the great thing about the internet, at least one good thing amidst all the other troubling things about the internet, is that there are a lot of people who are like you and have similar experiences and are also looking for connections. So, you know, be smart about how you connect with people online, but also, like, you know, be willing to step out of your comfort zone in order to find those connections.
1: Yeah, and, and also, too, I mean, the fact that there are, a good handful of autistic people in, in mental health work and social work, I think those are also really great resources. Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously, being autistic ourselves, we can provide um, very affirming care and a lot of affirming guidance to parents that are like, I don't know where to go from here.
2: Right. And that's, that's something I hope to see more in the future is more of the, the representation of autism in the in the helping profession field because those those uh, percep- perspectives are so important to the growth.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much to our guest, Caitlin Szymanski, for helping us understand this difficult issue.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me. It was great talking with you both. Yeah, Absolutely.
0: And thank you for listening. And please stay tuned for our post-interview thoughts on suicide ideation and conclusion of this episode. All right. So we just got off our um, second interview with Caitlin Szymanski and on a difficult topic of suicidal ideation among um, the autistic community. And we wanted to take this time to share our thoughts. So, Nicole, what do you think? What's your, what's your impressions here?
1: Um, I mean, I think that there's an interesting piece of feedback because I think on the one hand, when we talk about, um, autism and suicidal ideation, part of it is personal experience, you know, people who have had experience with suicidal ideation. And then there are people in the mental health field who are autistic, who have training and a ton of insight on this topic. And so I, I feel really good about a lot of different perspectives being discussed mm-hmm. on a topic that I think is, is being talked about, but not to a loud and prevalent degree that it should. Right. Um, what are your thoughts?
0: I think, well, one of the things that, that I think about is um, this in the context of a, the larger context of mental health. For neurotypical and neurodiverse people, really. I mean, that's what that's what this is about. I mean, if we compare about the resources dedicated to mental health for neurotypical people versus the resources dedicated for neurodiverse people, um I'm imagining those are very different. right? Mm-hmm. and so as as we promote um, our podcast and and the things and our our mission behind our podcast is to is to get some of the resources out there to people. Um, we're We're doing a small part, but there's there's got to be more people out there um, in this cause, right? because I, I think and we talked about it and it was discussed on our interview, you know it's 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 easy for the neurotypical um, parent or someone else who's seen behaviors that are different from the neurotypical and then not recognize that the other behaviors that might be in parallel, but are really symptomatic of, um, perhaps suicidal thoughts or, or depression or something like that. I think it's like you, you discussed this in our interview can be easily dismissed.
1: Mm-hmm. And and it's a shame. I mean, and, and the thing is, I don't feel like dismissing suicidal ideation is exclusively autistic because I think people who feel suicidal can often dismiss that they feel that they they get to that crisis place sure. because maybe they don't want to acknowledge that they're struggling, right. or because they don't have the resources. It's easier to just be in denial and you know hyper focus on something else as a distraction. Right. Um, so so I think in general, I think that people who are at risk are not equipped. To really understand not only the signs but but when those signs start kind of at a more milder stage mm-hmm. because you don't want to get to the point where you're like ready to jump off a building right right um because you've been suppressing or other people have been suppressing your feelings
0: right usually you know it from what little i understand about suicide it's not a zero to 100 moment it's a slow Method well, not methodical, but it's it's a series of events or circumstances mm-hmm. in which somebody is just, you know, from personal experience, because I I had these these um, these thoughts and feelings when I was in in high school. What we do when when we have uh, you know depression and something serious is that um, w- we dig ourselves into this mental pit, right? And that's that's how I describe it for people who who haven't had this and that that pit just gets deeper and deeper and deeper, and it could be um environmental things, it could be social things, it could be um, traumatic events that happen in our lives. And what happens is is that you know depression is just it feels like this enormous weight that's on you, and you are so deep in this pit that you've created for yourself that it's hard to see out of it, and it's hard to ask for help, right? because you just you just mentally you're not. You don't see periphery, right? you you just see that what's right in front of you, right? You, you don't see the bigger picture. you don't see how it's impacting other people. Um, you play this game, you you put the blinders on and you' you're, you put them on this mask that everything's okay when it's not. And some people are very good at that. Um, and other people are not. So I like how um, Caitlin was saying is that she looks for these little clues um it's kind of like the treasure map of you know this is ha- this is a serious mental health issue and so you know is it is it eating is it um speaking is it some behavior that we're noticing that's outside the norm when autistic people are outside the norm all away anyway right so it's mm-hmm. like okay you know my kid's a, a picky eater right but how do i know that this this my child is is even more of a picky eater because he has mental health struggles Right. So th- I think that's the other challenge for for parents, too. You, you almost have to be hyper aware of things and be, you know, seriously into the details of your child's life to understand these little these little clues.
1: Well, and it's not like you aren't already being super hyper focused on details prior to any sort of mental health crisis, because right. that's because it's like that's what you need to do just to figure out how to parent Somebody with autism
0: absolutely, absolutely. And it's like what what behaviors are even more out of the normal than normal, right? I mean, whatever that means, you know, it's like how do I okay, so my my child has a meltdown um they've they've had meltdowns, so how do how do i how do I help my child um, to know where this is this is going to lead to more serious things? And I like what she said actually, she gave us a clue on this is that what are the self-harming behaviors that your child is in, engaging in, right? And monitoring that and, and trying to dig down into, okay, what is, what's going on there? Having that conversation to the best that you can with your child about, okay, why are we doing this? When, when they're relaxed and calm and out of that, that mindset um, to try to dig down on, on the bigger issue if there is one.
1: Mm-hmm. How, do you, how did you feel as a parent Hearing all of that, because I know, like, we had talked about in our episode that it's not like you have firsthand personal experience, you know, with your mental health or your son's mental health. But did it give you any sort of peace of mind to hear an autistic, you know, an autistic mental health trained person talk about what to do to support a person on the spectrum with mental health distress?
0: Well, I think I think it was it was comforting to know that a lot of the symptoms were the same for neurotypical people as neurodiverse people. Um, but you just have to know your child, right? And you have to know, you know, what's going on in their lives. You have to be engaged, just like any parent, right? You have to be engaged in your child and their their day to day lives. You know, what is what's, you know, what is their passion? You know, what are you know, and are those passions? Th- here's another clue, right? So let us say that you know, um the the autistic child has certain passions um for X and and you know this consistently day after day after day, um the child is spending X number of time on this on this passionate um idea or topic or or whatever it happens to be and all of a sudden they're not. There's a clue. Right. Mm -hmm. So that might be one of those little indicators that perhaps there's something wrong. So um it's it's helpful to know, you know, that it's not a radically different set of circumstances or behaviors or symptoms than uh, a neurotypical child. Um, there are just some extra things to to look out for.
1: Mm-hmm. And we didn't have time to talk about this in our interview with Caitlin. One thing that I kept thinking about, um, and I think we might have talked about it in our previous episode, but I just remember having talked to a parent whose daughter. Um, got diagnosed with autism in an inpatient clinic after like three suicide attempts in two mm. years. And one of the things she told me was how much shame and guilt that she felt for like, how did I not know she was autistic prior to this?
0: Yeah, the parents feeling shame and guilt, right? Uh, yeah,
1: well, and and it was one of those things. And you know, granted, we're talking about a a woman with autism, so then there's there's more. I mean I don't want to say every woman with autism has subtle signs but but I think you know it's not like every parent is educated about every single you know disability if you will or every type of neurodiverse of trait and so she told me that like looking back after the diagnosis she was like oh I saw all the signs and she felt like she could have stepped in in a more appropriate way. Now, appropriate is such a subjective generalized thing, right. but but it was the, the fear and the guilt that there wasn't a proper intervention earlier because she didn't know that her child was autistic. And so I wanted to get your opinion as a parent. What advice do you have for other parents of kids getting diagnosed later in life feeling like they failed their child because their child was suicidal? You know,
0: yeah, my, my initial reaction to that is that you got to let that go. Hindsight's twenty twenty. You're not gonna, You're not going to you can't relive your life and, and fix everything. Right. So you didn't have the knowledge then, but you have the knowledge now. What are you going to do today to help your child? Right. Mm-hmm. You got to let you cannot let guilt and the past, um, the ignorance of, of whatever the, you know, the symptoms or signs or whatever you thought you missed. Let that go. Be here for your child today, starting today. Um, mm-hmm. because it's just not, it's not a good mental place for you to be in, right? I mean, if you're, if you're going to be um, just mulling over how you missed this, this big thing, then you're not going to be in a, mental health, a good mental health place to help your child now. Yeah. Because your child, as, as your child has you know, recently discovered that they are on the spectrum now, they're going to have a whole lot of things to think about and change, and they need you. They need you as a parent, a loving, supporting parent, and just let go of the past and be there for your child now. Mm-hmm.
1: And and I will add a few things. I think one, regardless of whether your child is autistic or not, I think the shame and guilt any parent feels for their child being suicidal, I think that's a very oh, normal, that's 100%. a normal reaction.
0: 100%. You know, yes, I think exactly. that
1: every parent I've ever seen come on the news and talk about their child that's committed suicide, they're always like, what could I have done, and what were the signs? You know, we feel. One hundred percent, yes. And and sure. I I say we like I have kids, but but I think parents, you know, they feel this tremendous weight mm-hmm. that everything their child goes through is a reflection of them. And did they do right. enough? And did they get it? You know, right. And and I think I think that that accepting that humanness and giving yourself compassion, which I know is so difficult. Um, And and I like what you said about, you know, just be focused on the present Mm -hmm. and and be forward thinking rather than, you know, feeling shame about the past. Um, And I think it's important to keep in mind that you have support in addition to your child. You are on this journey about understanding autism that is new and foreign. And that's okay. And and I also would say that, you know parents get secondary trauma from their child attempting suicide. And so mm-hmm. I think like when I think about my future therapy practice um, and I, and I think about ways that I want to support parents and parents are always like, well, what can I do for my child? And, you know, they focus so much right. on their children. And what I want to do is say, well, how can we take care of you? Right. And I think that when we worry and we, and, and we harp on that shame and that guilt we mm-hmm. neglect our own mental health, self care needs, Absolutely. and and it's and it's important that parents have a really good self care plan mm-hmm. in addition to enforcing a really positive self care plan for their child. Now, I don't always know every situation of a person with autism going into an inpatient clinic. Right. My initial thought is, if your child is in a clinic for a few days. As much as I acknowledge that parents are probably going through a lot, I think it's also a very important time to just rest, nurture yourself, reflect, you know, get outside, go for a walk, make sure that you're caring for you. Yeah. Instead of, you know, spending that time away from your child fixating on Mm -hmm, what can mm -hmm. I do and what did I do wrong and, you know, what steps do we need to take next? And yes, you, you know, maybe there are things you need to do next, but don't forget that you need to be in your best self to care for somebody who has just gone through a very traumatic crisis state.
0: Absolutely. And there are communities out there for, parents who have autistic children. Um, so easiest thing to do is go on Facebook, do a Google search or a search on Facebook and find, read the description of these communities and find the one that's right for you. And then all of a sudden you're connected to other people that have um, children who are on the spectrum.
1: Mm-hmm. So another thing I, I wanna bring up, so since we recorded our previous episode, so I've had more conversations with my parents about my suicidal feelings and and again, not that they're present at this time, but right. in the past. And so, and this is when
0: you were out of the house, right? This is as, uh, as yeah, an adult yeah, was, yeah. Okay.
1: Well, so um, I guess to kind of recap, there were kind of two instances of suicidal crisis for me. One was during my junior or senior year of college, right. uh, when I was like twenty one, twenty two, mm-hmm. and then the other time was a year ago i okay. want to say okay. uh so i'm 32 currently sure. so when i was 30 30 31 roughly mm-hmm. um and so i think on on a positive note you know i'm really glad that my my parents especially my mom you know she's she's curious to inquire more like what is your experience and you know what could i have done to support you and one of the things she had asked me, especially about the suicidal feelings when I was twenty two she said, "What could we have done differently to support you?" And I didn't expect how vulnerable that conversation was for me, okay. and partially because even though I am openly talking about my experience, it's still very it's still a very fragile feeling, okay, and so I don't know. it's like this weird inner conflict of like, I want to acknowledge it, but I also don't want to acknowledge it. But then there was also another issue where I was like, I don't even know. I, I, I'm i not a mental health expert quite yet. I mean, right. I just started my master's program. Basically, the topics we focused on is more meditation and mindfulness for mental health right. and equity and inclusion for counseling with diverse clients. But like, we haven't gotten any training on, you know, addressing mental health distress, you know, and I don't Mm -hmm. have that QPR training. Really the, the only thing I know about addressing suicide is what I know as a mandatory reporter, as a teacher. And even then, really your goal is you're transporting your student to the mental health experts.
0: Exactly. And
1: so I feel like there, that was another added layer of vulnerability because I don't know what my, I don't know what I could have asked for my parents. Um, and to be honest, at that time in my life, I really dealt with it through meditation. I didn't mm-hmm. even consider going to an inpatient clinic. Right. And I remember the first time I realized I had to be admitted, it was scary because yeah, sure. I had no idea what to expect. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what rights I was going to lose or how long I was going to be in there. Yeah. Um, and so I think the fear of the unknown is a, is a very big part of why I didn't pursue help. And and For now sure, yeah. that I have gone through a very awesome inpatient clinic mm-hmm. where it was voluntary admission and yeah. and now I have an idea of like what that experience was like. Yes. And what rights I had and didn't have. Right. I feel a lot more comfortable with knowing if I am in that place again, I know exactly mm-hmm. what to do, I know what to expect. So right. I feel a lot more comfortable with it. And and to be honest, I, I told my family, I have a lot more hope if I mm-hmm. do end up in a bad place because I trust that every crisis resource I accessed the last time I was in distress worked. And now mm-hmm. I know what to expect. I yeah. know what the signs are. and right. And the best part of the whole thing is I can take initiative. It's not like my husband has to watch out or my parents have to watch out. I can right. just take care of it all on my own. Um, but I do think it takes a lot of self-awareness and and self-compassion knowing you need help to initiate your own care rather than depending on somebody to initiate it for you.
0: Right. Or um thinking that you can fix it yourself. Right. That's another thing. Yeah, trap. sometimes
1: you can. That's, and
0: it's a trap because you know, I've I was in that trap and I was in that hole. And the the thing that that the moment that I realized that I needed to ask for help and and to lose this um, secret that I was carrying, right to to give that up and to shed light on on what was going on in my life and to ask for help the, that 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 big cloak that was burdening me at that moment was a little bit lighter, right because I knew that now I'm sharing this information that i'm I'm in distress, I need some help, and that this person that i'm confiding in is going to help me right
1: well yeah and and i would look at it like a physical health issue like the moment i knew i needed to be admitted was the moment when i looked at all the physical distress i was going through and i was like mm-hmm. if i had you know nerve jangling and burning in in my chest and pain mm-hmm. in the back of my neck and it was a physical health issue mm-hmm. i would go to the hospital immediately Right and so I kept thinking, well, then why wouldn't I just do that if I know it's a mental health issue right and And part of it also was you know calling calling a crisis hotline and just saying, "This is what I'm experiencing. What should I do next? Right. Or is this worth going to an inpatient clinic, or should I, you know, go to the hospital and right and they you know I, I think that those crisis workers are really good about being direct about, you know, whether or not you need that type of support.
0: For sure. Because they're not, they, they're not emotionally connected to you. They, they well, can and be... they're
1: not going to be like, yeah, go on in so we can make money. I mean, you, right. you'd hope that wouldn't be the case. Right. Right. Um, I mean, I, I felt that when I was getting consultation of like, I don't know what's going on. Um, what do I do next? Should I be admitted? Um I felt that my assessment was compassionate and honest. Mm. And I think having that second opinion from an expert really helped me to realize how significant I-, I was going through it and that I couldn't solve it on my own. And I and I think what you right. said earlier about the moment that you admit that you just need help. Yes. It's very similar to physical health. You know, mm-hmm. if if we're at the point where you know, we realize we're having a heart attack, we can't just tough it out. We have to realize we have to go to the hospital. Right. Not every health issue is something that we can deal with by ourselves. And yet we have a culture where we're conditioned to believe that we can fix all of our mental health issues by just, you know, fixating on something else.
0: Right, right. I mean, there is a culture out there that you know the strong can figure it out, and the weak need help right yeah whatever that whatever that looks like, or whatever that however that manifests itself um, mm-hmm. there is that out there
1: well, and then the other thing, so I had a recently i had like a a therapy session with uh, my mom, and the therapist you know was very transparent, and she said, "You know, your parents are very worried about your mental health, and that was so hard to hear mm. um, and and I think it's it's one of those conflicting feelings where it's not that I'm proud of what I went through, but I feel like I own it as part of who I am. Sure. And obviously, I'm here on a podcast talking about it, which mm-hmm. I don't think everybody is comfortable doing for sure. But the moment that I heard that my parents were worried about me. I just started crying. Mm. Um, because it and part of it was like, I don't want to create that burden on my parents. But another part of it, and I and I processed this with my with the therapist, is that I didn't want to feel like I was weak, mm. that I was incapable yeah. of taking care of my mental health. And, right, right. and I think that what I've discovered at this time in my life, um I've I guess I've gone through a lot of clarity and a lot of catharsis around my my suicidal feelings from the past and mm-hmm. and one of the things that I did is I just had this mindfulness self-compassion practice of like you you're human, you struggle. It's okay. Right. You got help and you're okay. And and it's okay if you go through that again because now you know what to do. Right. And I didn't realize that having this deep compassion about this part of myself was so similar to, you know, going through a compassionate experience about being autistic. Like mm. it was this incredible feeling of self-love that I struggle mm. and that's okay. Right. And, and I'm giving permission for my body mm. to struggle and not yeah. feel shame or have right. this perfectionist expectation. And, and, it, and it felt so soothing. And and today, the way that I feel about my mental health is I can't guarantee that I won't feel suicidal again in the future. And in right. fact, you know, with a lot of these news articles that come out about postpartum depression and women committing suicide or, you know, sure. doing very radically violent things because of postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis, I got terrified, you yeah. know, what's gonna happen to my mental health when I have a kid or when I'm pregnant, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I, I felt so much fear of like, mm-hmm. I don't wanna go back through that. But what felt really soothing was telling myself it might happen. And for me, it's okay to allow my body to feel in distress and struggle, because I know exactly what to do to get help, yeah. I and and my confidence in my mental health comes from the confidence of the care that I know I have access to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things I tried to tell my my mom is, I want you to have more faith that I'll be okay. And I know mm. that that is such a hard thing to ask. And I think about this mom who had the you know the autistic daughter that was suicidal, that, you yeah. know, the moment that your child expresses suicidal thoughts or attempts suicide, mm-hmm. as a parent, I don't think you ever let go of that fear. No, for sure. And sense. and I get it. I have, you know, the therapist said, because your parents are worried, it shows how much they love you, how much you matter to them. and I And I respect and appreciate that. And at the same time, I feel like I need to have more faith because to be honest, in all of the times that I had these intrusive suicidal thoughts, I never wanted to end my life. My body was so chronically dysregulated that it wanted something that my mind and my heart didn't want. Hmm. And so I feel like I'm, I'm developing more resilience with the tools that I have access to. So Mm -hmm. it's not about having confidence about, I will never go through that ever again, because you just, you never know what you're going to go through in life. Yeah,
0: You can't say that. Yeah, for sure.
1: But to have a structure and consistency of today, meditation feels really good today. Going for a walk, making Mm -hmm. art, journaling feels good today. Mm -hmm. I might need to go to a crisis center, an inpatient clinic. There's so much strength in the way that you, as the person going through the, the distress, can self advocate. Yeah. And I can't even begin to tell you how much will I have to live. And a big part of it has to do with my passion for autism advocacy. I don't even know how to explain it. it it's it's the purpose of why I'm alive, mm. and I feel like that is the primary thing that keeps me fighting to live that's awesome um and and the other thing that i i told myself and i told my loved ones is i don't want to die in a way that creates trauma for my loved ones yeah and um and you know at the end of the day suicide is a choice you know dying of cancer is not always a choice dying right. in a in a you know, a horrible accident or dying of a disease, that's not your choice, but suicide is. Mm -hmm. And I think as an advocate, as somebody who is in mental health work, I really had a lot of thoughts about what are my values around death? Mm. How do I, when it is my time and it's in my control, how do I want my loved ones to feel do I do I want to create pain, right? By my choices, and so that really helped me to feel a sense of inner purpose and not strength, but purpose mm-hmm. of like I can't control when these feelings come up, but I know deep down I know how I want to leave this this planet, mm-hmm. and I want to leave it better than I left it, and and if and if my choice to end my life is not leaving my loved ones better off. I don't want to do that. Right. Um, And I think it's taken some time for me to communicate to my family how driven I am to be alive, but I'm driven in a yeah. very dysregulated, highly sensitive body that yeah. struggles to be in a neurotypical world. Mm-hmm. And I and I told my parents, I just want you to have more faith. That even though I struggle, I'm not going to leave.
2: Yeah.
1: And it's and the therapist said it's going to take time for my parents to believe that. And mm. and I said, well, what can I do to help them instill more confidence in me? Mm. And they said, and she said, the more that you're in, and not that we're encouraging me to be in crisis, but mm. if it happens right. again. And I'm okay because I knew exactly what to do. The more that I am able to take appropriate action and and uh, empowering action to yeah. care for my well being, the more faith my parents are going to have.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: And so I I guess I'm sharing this. I don't know if anything I'm saying is is any is any sort of advice for others. I think I'm just voicing where I mm-hmm. am in my mm-hmm. mindfulness journey with my feelings of suicide and i think what i want to leave off is to say that it is such a vulnerable painful experience for everybody involved parents oh, sure. and the person with autism Absolutely. and then especially if you're loading a brand new autism diagnosis on top of that and yeah that creates more existential dread of sure. like you know who am i and You know, I mean, any sort of mental health distress, it it creates this crisis of who am I and what kind of life do I want to live and and what's going wrong? And another thing I told my parents, and, and I guess this is a very spiritual way of looking at suicide, but in tarot... The the symbol of death, it's never about literal death. It's about symbolic death, which usually means transition. Right. So, for example, leaving my teaching job was a death. Hmm. But then that meant I could transition into something that was more positive and invigorating, which was getting into my master's program. Sure. And so what I try to tell myself is, if I'm going to choose not to die because I'm feeling suicidal, then something else has to. And and basically what that means is, what do I need to change in my external reality and in my internal reality so that I can move to a healthier place? Mm. Um, And so I think that having that mindset for me personally has helped me to be uh, more attentive to the nuance clues of my crisis state But then also, I'm a lot more proactive of saying, what's going on in my life? You know, maybe Mm -hmm. I need medication. Maybe I need to take a break from work. Um, Maybe I need to reevaluate my mindset about life, you know? Sure. But but the point that I'm trying to get at is, you know, recovering from a crisis like that triggers a huge amount of transition. And there is loss. But then there's also a lot of profound insights that help mm. you to live a better life if you end up choosing to live, which right. as, as we we hope you choose to. Absolutely, right? 100%. Um, yeah, so I feel like this episode has been so cathartic in a way because I feel like I entered this topic with so much vulnerability and so much Grief and denial of like,
0: mm-hmm, man, mm-hmm. it sucks
1: that I struggle in that way. Right. But then, I feel like being in this place now, recording this episode, I, I feel I feel so good about being open, and not even, I mean, of course, I want to be open as a way to help others, but but to almost document this journey, Yeah, feels really good, and, and to be able to document it with you. You know, somebody who cares about me, but is not a primary caregiver that isn't, you know, deeply entrenched in my mental health journey. It feels really good. Um, The other thing I'll say, too, is as the artwork for this episode. That was also incredibly cathartic to make. And I showed it to my mom and the therapist. And the therapist was so tremendously moved. My mom didn't understand what the symbol of the semicolon was. She was like, oh, right. it's pretty. Yeah. You know, I get that it relates to suicide, but what's the symbol for? And, it's like uh, you're
0: having a baby. What's that? What's going on? <laughs> uh,
1: you know, but, you know, the therapist was like, frame that drawing. Because yeah. any time that you get to that place of distress, mm. look at that drawing. hmm and maybe that will give you some sort of hope,
0: motivation.
1: Yeah. And yes, and right. I and I do plan on on framing it. Um yeah, it's, because it's a very it,
0: hopeful art artwork. It it's is. Yeah.
1: And and I think that what I love about that piece is it really shows how much love I have for myself
2: mm-hmm. and how
1: much I love life and my life. That even though life is tremendously difficult for people like me. To be able to look at that image and say, I have so much compassion and love for my life and and compassion and gentleness towards this really painful experience that I Mm -hmm. went through. I think that's one more tool I have in my toolbox to prove to myself that I have resilience. Absolutely. So
0: That's awesome. High five, virtual high five.
1: (laughs) High five.
0: That's right. That's awesome. So, and where can they find your artwork, Nicole?
1: Oh, well, an interesting plug, if you will. Okay. So I, I post my artwork on Instagram as well as my poetry. And if you type in Understanding Autism Podcast or Nicole Kabilis, you'll find it there. We also have it on Facebook as well as our website, which is understandingautism.info. Um, awesome yeah and and i know we kind of talked about in our previous episode it was the end of the season but i guess this episode is really the end of the season this will
0: be the end of we will include this in uh season one for sure
1: yeah yeah definitely so anyway um also we will let you know we did interview caitlin for a really awesome episode in season two so you'll have to stay tuned for that
0: Definitely stay tuned for that. All right. So thank you for tuning in and we will see you next week. Until then, I am Brett Thayer.
1: And I'm Nicole Cabellas. All
0: right. Give me a second.